Present Tense Podcast by Green Bucket Press. Hi, this is Ann Bailey, the host of Present Tense Podcast by Green Bucket Press. If you like what you hear today, I hope that you'll subscribe and give us a quick review. We want to reach more listeners, and you can help. Enjoy today's episode. Because many of these will be banned by the, li- by the library and um, by the general, pe- uh, the general um, office, uh, the, um, the GPO, and they would always do red bindings. Um, this is sort of standard GPO binding. That's a standard GPO binding. This is a 1930s to 70s before conservation started. They used a lot of this orange leather. You know, this collection's been tampered with a lot. And is that as different groups have had control of it, or...? It's always rare book. So what do you mean it's been tampered with? Um, because it's an important collection, it's been rebound many times, so that's, that's what I mean. You know, few of them are in completely pristine, and you know, it's 18th century, um, really bad, awful leather, so, but few of them are in sort of their original condition. Like these ones, the tops have been fixed, this has been completely rebound, nothing's happened to these two, so okay. that's what I mean by... And when did they start working with the collection? Because it's always interesting how the different uh, views of working with these older books, you know, as it moves through time, the view of how to conserve them changes. Well, I mean, um, they started working with them as soon as they came in. So they came in. The Library of Congress. I mean, we don't. Our conservation department only started in 1970. So right. before that, it yeah, was I mean. the bindery, exactly. and then it was the GPO bindery, and then. That's why they, yeah, you so, know, so many have such an interesting history yeah. of marks and. So, yeah. So they're. So I think right from the beginning. They, yeah. Um, see here, there was a, um, a decorative um, uh, stamp, and then they put the eagle smack on top of the decorative stamp as it came in. And you can see that here, this would have had a decorative stamp, a little different, maybe a flower or something, but you yeah. can see it's been yeah. eradicated by the um, interesting uh, exhibition of courtroom um, illustration. Mm-hmm. I haven't looked at it yet, but the collection up top on the on the sides is actually the European, I think, reference book. Do you want to go through or do you want to just generally walk around? Um, I don't know if we can go out. Do you want to go through and have a quick look? Yeah. Yes, everything. I mean, like even ties. It looks like a sand, you know, a soft sand, a soft shoe. Clothes. Closed shoe. It's, it's, it's a real shoe. Yeah, so it's not like just, here. well, I guess that would last. Yeah. Because when you had shoes that were just made out of grasses or something, no, they would have degenerated. Leather, leather real. I mean, yeah. it looks like shoe, and it's like six 
thousand years old. People for five, six. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's already a, a, a advanced civilization. Yes. Getty Museum wants really to <laughs> to have that shoes in their collection. Steal the patrimony of Armenia, even if it's no. a shoe. Only a shoe. <laughs> a shoe is a very, very important thing. Almost is a shoe more or less important than a needle? <laughs> no, because you couldn't have the shoe without the needle. Mm. At least not the leather shoe without the needle. <laughs> True. That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> so the needle comes first. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Enjoy your visit. Thank so you. T uh, Tamara works on digitization projects. Yes. So I, that's I why treat she's got all. Copy. Yeah. Sometimes I get these, but sometimes I get these. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's a mixture of different uh, types, and types and levels of treatment and yeah, value. So nice to meet you. Me too, me too. Yasmin Khan is a senior rare book curator at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. I met Yasmin in New York when we were fresh women at Barnard College. As a wide-eyed young woman from the provincial suburbs of Birmingham, Alabama, I was fascinated by Yasmin and her friends, who were cultured, poised, and cosmopolitan. In contrast, I felt self-conscious and awkward. After college, we saw one another from time to time. We each studied book arts. She was at UT Austin, and I was at the University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa. Yasmin became a conservator, and I became a book artist, poet, and entrepreneur. Each of us married our boyfriends from Columbia College, and unbeknownst to us at the time, our sons were born on the same night, many miles apart. As I mapped episodes for Present Tense podcast, it occurred to me to interview some of the Barnard women who'd made such an impression on me years ago. I reached out to Yasmin, and she agreed to meet me in D.C. To my great joy, she gave me a private tour of the Library of Congress and of her book lab. She showed me some of the many fascinating book and manuscript restoration projects that are going on in the lab. You hear some of our tour early in the episode. The next day, Yasmin sat down with me to talk about her life over tea. I want to note that some of the terms she uses in discussing her family lineage and history, as well as the timeline of the historical upheaval called partition, are explained on our webpage at greenbucketpress.com backslash present-tense-podcast.
my parents were um, diplomats. My father was a diplomat, and they um, traveled for many, many years. I was the last of five children, and I was born in Spain. By the time I was born, I had um, three elder sisters and a brother. And my mother didn't really want to have any more children. In fact, um, she had had liposuction done. And it was in Europe. And at that time, in 1961, um, liposuction was incredibly radical. They basically cut around your stomach, peeled it up, scraped off the fat, and then tightened your stomach and sewed it back up. Um, so she'd had that done in France, and my parents were living in Spain at the time, which is a Catholic country. And uh, the doctor, after sewing her up, said, you know, you can't have any more kids. Little did my mother know she was pregnant. When she found out, she wanted to get an abortion. And my father said, look, um, you know, it was meant to be. You should just go ahead. And, you know, we have three daughters and one son. And it's possible that this is going to be another son. And she said, all right, if it's a son, I'll do it. So she went through uh, the pregnancy. And the family law is that for my sisters and my uh, mother, I hear that um, her stomach was so thin, the skin was pulled so thin that they could actually like make shadows of me out through her stomach. And in fact, she had a C-section three or four weeks three weeks beforehand because they were worried that her stomach would burst, physically burst. I was born in a hospital in Madrid and when my mother came to they brought the baby to her and she, you know, unswaddled the baby and, you know, looked, looked at the baby, she said, this isn't mine, it's a girl. Not my baby. Take away. <laughs> so I was promptly taken away then my dad was brought in by the um and I wouldn't she wouldn't feed me right so my dad came in and um counseled my mother and there was a big deal and so my mother grudgingly fed me but at the same time uh I was a Pakistani baby born in Spain to the diplomat's wife and I was a very beautiful little baby apparently and my mother had these big eyes so everybody kind of thought she was really beautiful too so um, there were all these pictures that people you know newspapers wanted to come and take photographs of mother and child etc etc and my mother really did not want to hang on to me but it was really funny so I don't have many pictures of me as a baby at all um, they are pictures from newspapers however <laughs> and my mother said by you know six months in she kind of forgave me for being a girl she she would tell me the story as a child, and well, I thought it was a really story of yeah mother being disappointed yeah. But in this case, it actually you know I I think it's incredibly selfish of my father not to let my mother have an abortion because it was really bad for her health, and um, all her life afterwards she always had a pregnancy stomach. They could never it didn't matter how much weight she lost. Um, something had happened to her in it, so she had this tall sort of barrel stomach that was kind of like a pregnant stomach. Yeah. It sounds like um, maybe her muscles, the muscles yeah. that are in the 
Well, they were no muscles, hardly, because they pulled them tight. And I remembered I would, I would have her pull up her shirt and I would look at her scar. And it was like a Frankenstein scar going from um, sort of the bottom of her ribs from one side all the way down through her pelvic area all the way up to the other side. And that wasn't the C-section? That was the scar from um, the, liposuction. Her, the liposuction, which they had to open up to do the C-section. They did the same, used the same scar, and, and it had these like cross staples that were, you know, a couple of inches um, wide. Yeah. But she loved me dearly. I never felt unloved by her. <laughs> but we, yeah, she was very funny. My mother had a great sense of humor. So my parents both came, come from this little town in Pakistan called Dera Ismail Khan, which is. Um, in the southern part of uh, a province called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, or KPK, KPK um, which has a border with Afghanistan. So it's close to the Afghan border, and it's also on the banks of the river Indus, where it's actually the widest. It's like, you know, from bank to bank, it's about 12. It's, it's pretty wide. Um, and um, my father's family they're a religious family of mullahs, and my great-grandfather um, was a Sufi and part of this order, Sufi order called Naqshbandi, which is one of the most conservative Sufi orders, and it comes from Central Asia. So they're like the an anti-Sufi Sufi. Um, and uh, so he and their family from generations have been involved with a shrine, and they were... Um, in that area? In that area. And uh, my grandfather and his brother decided they no longer wanted to be involved with a shrine and be kind of poor or, you know, to be, invo to be it's called a gaddina sheen. It's somebody who is um, the leader of an order and the leader of the shrine. And so pilgrims come there and you make money and it's kind of, it's all a little you might be spiritual but there's a there's a slight unsavory aspect to it so they decided they wanted to go middle class and they um, moved into the city and um, became uh, became regular Malvis which is mullahs so so that they, they their religious education get got parlayed into being um, sort of learned religious people um, and then, and then they had um, uh, jobs as well, metiers, crafts. So my grandfather was a tailor, and his brother was a hakim, which is a, a, somebody a Greek medicine, a doctor of Greek medicine, in in the uh, homeopathic sense of the word. So, um, and uh, what they it's traditional in their families to, at least my father's family, to marry within themselves. The best marriage is father's brother's son. So first current cousin marriages. And uh, my mother's family, my um, grandfather was an orphan and extremely poor, came from an extremely poor family, somehow got an education. Um, but they were pretty much dirt poor, and they came from a lineage, of, a dirt poor lineage. 
and uh, but he became extremely wealthy because he um, had a, a he was a talented mechanic somehow he learned how to fix things and um, he started where uh, Deris was a big British cantonment town um, so he ended up fixing cars and um, jeeps and all kinds of things for the British army that was um, stationed there and ended up making a lot of money going into private business and buying trucks and uh, became was one was the most successful um, transportation person truck transportation person in northern in that northwestern India so he was very very wealthy and he had 14 kids one wife he yeah. married her he got married later in life so later in life being 28 he married a cousin no he married a cousin when he was 25 and she was about nine so she came into his house and was brought up by his mother she had her first period at 12 the marriage was consummated so he was 28 at this time my mother was born a year later so my grandmother and my mother were 13 years apart and they didn't get along because my grandmother was pretty much still a child and my grandfather was so happy to have a baby he gave my mother a lot of affection which my grandmother really resented she pretty much resented all her kids because they took her husband's attention away from her she never really quite managed to grow up there was this really wealthy man's daughter going to school there she met my father's sister and they both had the same name which was Belkis which is the name in, in the Quran Belkis is the name of the Queen of Sheba. So my uh, aunt and my mother became very good friends and my grandfather, though a, uh, my father's father, though an ex a successful um, tailor, he was still just a tailor, um, and um, my father had passed the Indian civil service exam so he was clearly going to be going places and um, my aunt felt that he needed a slightly more sophisticated wife and she'd bring money into the family so she basically brokered um, uh, a marriage between my father and her best friend and convinced her father that look this is the daughter of a very wealthy man you know we can forget getting married to a cousin um, my father had been engaged before by the way so and let's get her married to this person so my grandfather went off to meet her father my mother's father and brought the uh, you know he proposed for my father and my father never saw my mother before they married my mother saw my father this uh, family had a lot of stature they were educated in Persian and Arabic and English and I think that was the only person who married outside of the family on either of the siblings on either side, mother and father's side. All the other, all their siblings married first cousins. And there was no other marriage between my father's and mother's side of the family at all. Subsequently, nothing. 
Um, but my father had been engaged before to a first cousin, and then she had um, had typhoid. No, typhoid or scarlet fever. Typhoid, I think. And um, which leads to a very, very high fever. And when she recovered, she, her brains were addled. Oh. Like she clearly, she lost major marbles. She always thought we were her children. She was a lovely, sweet lady, and she thought we were her kids. And my mother tolerated her because she yeah. was so. She was a sweet, you know, nice person. She, she wasn't jealous of my mother at all. It was really funny. Yep. Yeah, so my parents got married. My mother was 23 when she got married. She had been engaged before too and broken off the engagement because she didn't like the family, even though they were her cousins. And my mother wasn't um, traditionally pretty. I mean, if you see pictures, she had very strong black teeth. Um, but later in life, um, when she lost her teeth and had uh, you know, false teeth put in, she was really beautiful. It was really interesting. It all came down to the teeth. But my father loved her. I mean, he. The, my mother said when they first got married, it was highly romantic. My father had been a poet, so he would write poetry to her. He had been a poet that was, he had um, sort of, he was well known amongst um, the poets of India. He wasn't known amongst the non-poets. He wasn't popular, but everybody knew who he was who was a poet. Before they got married, um, so all of this is happening in the 19, late 40s. So before they got married, um, my father had been teaching in a town called Jalandhar, which is in Indian Punjab right now. And um, he'd been teaching English at um, university. And he, things were getting a little rough. It was 1947, um, but it wasn't the summer, and uh, the university closed down. He decided to go back, so he just packed up, you know, a few clothes and went back to went to his hometown, which was in Deras Makhan, which is in present-day Pakistan, expecting everything to get resolved. He'd done his civil service exam and he'd passed it, so he was expecting to be called up and and to be asked what part of the civil service he was going to be interested in joining. The university never opened. Partition happened that summer and he never went back to get his stuff. He didn't go back to get his stuff till 1951. Not 51, 1958. He was waiting around figuring out what to do. And towards the end of, um, he got married in 1940, he got 48 the next year and he got called up by the government, newly formed government of Pakistan in Karachi and he went there to get to be interviewed. He was asked what he wanted to, what, what part of the government he wanted to join and he said I want to join the Foreign Service. So um, they, which was considered very prestigious but he wanted to travel. So he um, makes his way up to Karachi which is about 1600 miles away or something because um, we're in the north of the country and that's all the way in the south. And um, he gets there, everybody is interviewing him and you know the whole Pakistani government is made up of people who have come from India. So none of these people know anything about Pakistan. The people who live in this geographic area of what is now Pakistan, 
they don't know the families, they don't know anybody there. So he comes, he, he arrives, he trips, breaks his finger in Karachi, he doesn't know where to go, somebody says go to this doctor, he goes to the doctor, they fix his finger up, he goes to his interview, and they ask him, one of the things they ask him is, you know, what's wrong with your finger? And he said, oh, I broke it, so I had to go to the doctor, and they were like, which doctor did you go to? And he tells them, and they're like, oh, he went to the best, most prestigious doctor. This man must be the son of somebody really important, you know, a very powerful man in the north. Um, and um, the Foreign Service was very, very elitist, so they didn't... Um, so the, the people who joined were like the sons of princes and, you know, these small principalities in India that were all uh, subsumed with the independent India in Pakistan. These principalities broke up, but all these, there was all this excess royalty, so they just put them in the foreign service. So they said he must be the son of somebody really powerful whom we don't know up there, so that he immediately was inducted into the foreign service. And it was just a matter of luck. And, you know, he was the son of a, a religious person, a Malvi, so, but he had to learn how to waltz, he had to learn how to dance, um, um, he had to learn, he didn't know French, he had to learn French, he knew Persian and Arabic and English, um, but French was the language of diplomacy, mm -hmm. so he had to learn French. He also had to learn, um, you know, they teach you how to do uh, all about wine and how to do a, you know, a multiple table setting, all these things which he didn't have to do, but he would have have to make sure, put, entertain in that yeah. fashion. Um, so, yeah, so he went back, got my mother, they came back, it was all waltzing, you know, and French. His brother, his elder brother, who was a very handsome man, um, and gay, but my dad never drank alcohol, ever. My mother would have sangria, but she said that's not alcohol. And, um, they, and my father was very religious all his life. He prayed five times a day. My mother was religious, but she didn't pray at all. She just had a, she was much more spiritual, way more spiritual than my father. Um, but that didn't mean they weren't open-minded or things. And my um, siblings, I don't think... The only person I think there might have been some cultural confusion with was my brother. But that's more because he had uh, bigger issues revolving around trauma associated with... Uh, being treated as a boy by my dad, you know, my father trying to instill manly characteristics in him, which I think he was very heavy-handed um, in doing. Uh, but none of the girls, no. Other than maybe my uh, the sister who's just older than me, who ended up living in Pakistan, despite the fact that she didn't have the temperament for it. She's very straightforward and doesn't, can't abide hypocrisy and not to say that my other sisters can but she's, she just, she wants to live life on her terms and in Pakistan 
you have to, if you do that, um, you have to make adjustments in your outward behavior when you're with people. And, and most of those adjustments have to actually do with how you express yourself. It's like, you know, it's, it's like, you know, here you say, I want, uh, I want a cup of water. There you would say, would you like a cup of water? End up doing is finding uh, a subgroup that you um, identify with. And in when that, and, and, and that group, you're safe within that group in a, in a straightforward manner. You always ask for it in a roundabout way which takes time, and the response also is never very clear. So, it's a pain in the ass if you can't, if you don't have a lot of patience, which my sister doesn't have, neither do I. In Pakistan, because the, the number of people you'd, asso of, of, you'd associate with in a town, there are many different types of people, but it's a smaller subgroup. So for me, it's really great. I work as a conservator. My everybody's interested in what I'm interested in is equally wacky. So I work with my subgroup. I even socialize with them. And um, for her, she works in. Uh, she's a nuclear physicist, so she works with a bunch of engineers and scientists who are actually. Um, intellectually extremely uh, and um, spiritually extremely conservative. She does not have a, a, a cohort. I actually never lived in Pakistan because my parents, my father was a diplomat um, from, you know, 1948 to 1982. And he, um, from 1959 to 1980, he lived outside of the country. He just went from one foreign posting to another, which was very, very unusual for a diplomat. So I was born in 62. Mm -hmm. I didn't live in Pakistan. Um, we'd go back every two years for a summer holiday, but that was the extent of my experience of Pakistan. And we'd go back to my parents' hometown, and we'd go to, you know, a big city or two. So I really didn't see a lot of Pakistan. I saw the three main big cities and my parents' hometown. So when I came to the US after college, I was, I wanted to go back, you know. That's what I thought, I'd, you know, go back and make my life there. And my parents were living in Islamabad at that time. So yeah, I thought, and I had, um, you know, at college I ended up with uh, a degree in Middle Eastern studies and I was excited about and I was always interested in Islamic art and Indian art so I was I was looking forward to go back going back the reality was a little different but I got back and I um, wanted to work there so I found there was the Institute of Folk Heritage because that was the closest sort of cultural institution in Islamabad that I could work at. And my father got me an interview there, um, because that's the way things happen. 
uh, with the de executive director and um, this was you know I gave him my CV and stuff and he um, his comment was why, why have you come why did you come back you've studied abroad all your life you know why on earth did you come back and I said and you know and and why why did you and basically why did you come back and why you come why have you come back and why are you bothering me go back to the US so I said to him uh, I wouldn't be here if I had a if I had an American passport I'm only here because I have a Pakistani passport and I have to come back I was pissed off at him anyway I thought the interview sucked um, but a few days later the director research of that institution called me up and said we have a couple of contracts that if you feel you could work on we'll give you some contract work so that was really nice because I met a lot of artists and musicians um, through that job which for me was the, that was very much my um, milieu I found my subgroup there um, but Again, after living independently for four or five years, going back to living with your parents is not as much fun. And uh, secondly, I really didn't know how to how to relate socially to people. So I would go to parties. I didn't know how to tell. I could meet women, but I couldn't read. I couldn't read if guys were interested in me, or I just didn't know how to. I was used to socializing in America. I was not used to socializing having a so you know with with Pakistani so I didn't I just couldn't read them. And I um realized that if I stayed there I would possibly uh do something that my parents didn't approve of at all. Like get involved with a married man or somebody somebody who was who I could read better than the unmarried men whom I couldn't figure out if they were if there was anything going on because I couldn't read them at all <laughs> and years later there was never any there, there was no uh, rivalry between them for parental attention and I think that's 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 the that's the rivalry that occurs when there's not that much um, age there's, the age gap is very small. It's not that there's a rivalry, but there is this... Because he was in this, I must spill the beans mode. Um, and he said to me, you know, I always, I was always interested in you. Um, when, when you were here, I, I really, really liked you. And I'm like, and I was just like appalled. And um, I just wanted you to know that. Um, are you still married? And I'm like, yes. And then he goes off. My sisters are screaming with laughter. And, um, and, and you know, the discussion occurred. I had no idea. And they had no idea either. So it wasn't just me who couldn't read the fact that this guy had been interested in me. They couldn't read it either. No matter how much you love your digital devices, 
There's nothing that compares to putting pen or pencil to paper in a book. A book that can be transported without the anxiety of depleted batteries. The physical world resonates. We are physical beings. Our senses respond to physical stimuli. And this is the power of the book. The book is a physical object that we can hold in our hands, cradle in our arms. We form a relationship with the paper in a book by its smell, its texture, its pliancy as we turn the pages. We feel how the mechanics of the binding affect the opening of the pages. We hear the sheets of paper as they turn, as they brush our hands or our clothing. And of course, there is the sound of the tip of the pen or pencil as it moves along the page, in sync with our mind and its infinite possibility. The relationship to the book has been one of my primary influences in life. Not only did I find my own tribe of thinkers and artists in books, but I also created my own voice as I wrote down thoughts, crafted poems, and made drawings. When I founded Green Bucket Press, I wanted to create forms for communication. One of these forms is our line of blank writing journals called the Voice Book. The Voice Book comes in several sizes and paper styles, including grids and lines. The Voice Book is made for writing, drawing, and reckoning. You can find them on our online store, greenbucketpress.com slash workshop. Expand your relationship with the book. Voice book. Years ago, we would travel and they'd be like, they'd be 12 suitcases and seven of us. My parents had three suitcases apiece. The rest were the kids. And we weren't allowed to travel with many toys. We had to get, have very few toys when you traveled. And I remember telling my parents at one point, well, you have so many clothes and we don't have as many clothes as you do. And you just keep buying stuff. And my father said to me, this is our life. You are living our life. So we get to make the decisions and we get to have as many clothes as we want and give you as many clothes as we think you need. When it's your life, you can do what you want. <laughs> and I thought that made total sense. But I think nowadays often parents live, it's the children's life and the parents are kind of a, a little add-on. Not the big, they're the money bag add-on. He collected um, manuscripts, he collected painting, he went through, he was a manic collector, so he would go through um, periods where he would focus on one type of thing and he'd collect all of that, and then another type of thing, and he'd, you know, develop an expertise in a certain area, and then he'd move on to another area, and when he felt he'd collected as much as he wanted mm -hmm. of the stuff that he liked in that area, then sure. he'd move on to something else. He always loved manuscripts, though. And um, 
and he uh, could read Arabic and Persian and spoke them fairly well, so he would collect them in, in that area. And, and he did was you also learn about that with him, from him? No, I didn't learn from him. I, mean, I just knew that I, we lived, a, he would spend a lot of time going out and searching for things that he was interested in, so we would go with him, um, spent a lot of time uh, in antique stores or with other collectors or... Um, he felt, he, he didn't feel a, that kids should have their own life, so he would take us with him wherever he went. Um, so that imbibed that, and he loved art. And so when I was little, and I couldn't read very well, or at all, I was, before I went to, um, or I was, you know, three or four, one of my earliest, mem earliest memories are just sitting in a chair like that, an armchair, and um, somebody bringing, like, the catalogue resume of Raphael and putting it on my um, lap, and I leafing my way through it. And um, when I wanted to read something, I would try and read it, or, or I would sound out a word if I didn't know what it meant. And I, my siblings, one of them would be walking by and they'd tell me what it meant. Or if I couldn't read a word, they'd come and read it for me. But I, I spent a lot of time, and he had loads of art books, a lot of time looking at pictures. And he loved that. My father wanted his kids to be artists because he loved art. Yeah, he was very disappointed that none of the that my uh, the rebellion of my elder siblings was they all, they all went into the sciences. In fact, my eldest sister, who was a a talented painter, got to art school, got involved in her anatomy draw, uh, drawing classes, and realised she loved the human body so much, she wanted to be a doctor instead. Went back to school to get her uh, to do her A levels in um, sciences, so she could apply to medical school. And my father, he was so disappointed in her. So he was really happy when I said I wanted to be a conservator. He was like, he loved that. He wanted one of his kids to become a diplomat. Nobody wanted to do that, but conservator was, he felt it was an even, you know, somehow being in the arts was a higher calling for him. I just sort of felt fell into it as um, when I was at Barnard, I was doing a lot of art history, Middle Eastern art history, and worked as a research assistant to um, the curator of uh, Islamic art at the Met. I would go twice a week, and we were working on um, early Indian Indo-Muslim painting, which hadn't at that point been characterised as yet. Um, so I would go every twice a week and I had my books and we'd talk about what I was supposed to be looking at and information I was supposed to collect and I'd work there and then she went away uh, on a trip one summer for about six weeks. The other curator there was really, they had a big rivalry and she was very very mean. Um, so every time I'd go she would move my stuff 
and I wouldn't have a desk to sit at, and I couldn't find the books that I'd got. And it was a really, it was very mean, very, very petty. And um, finally I decided, I went to my advisor at, um, at Barnard, who was this great woman, Barbara Stoller Miller. She was the uh, Sanskrit specialist. She was the translator of the Gita Govinda. Um, and she said to me, was she your advisor too? She's Oriental. Um, and she and you know, I talked to her and she's like, well, why don't I, um, if you know, you're having problems in the museum world, I said these curator the curatorial world is just really, the fights are really nasty and it's just really off-putting. So she said, well, um, I, I used to work for, uh, when I was a graduate student, for a, um, a dealer in New York named Doris Wiener. I'll call her up and see if she needs somebody to work for her. So she called up Doris, and uh, who, whose gallery was in a building opposite the Met. Uh, it was sort of, it wasn't on the ground floor. You had to know where her gallery was. She only sold to select clientele. And Doris said, sure, you know, because she said, what languages does she have? Persian and uh, um, Hindi. So I went over and she um, would ingest collections and I would write um, the description and date and describe the collect uh, the, each item and write the blurb about what it was and what it was um, pertained to. So I did that and um, Doris sold to museums and to expensive collectors. I enjoyed the work there and then one winter I was in Pakistan for a holiday um, and Doris came to Pakistan to do some buying and I said to her I'd like to see how you buy stuff and she said no I don't want you to involved in this and I was like fine and uh, she went to Peshawar to look at some Gantaran pieces and um, which is patrimony of the nation not allowed to take it out and I was in New York when the doorbell rang and the pieces arrived and they were paid for in New York so she didn't get her hands dirty. She did not smuggle anything out. I think this might be, I shouldn't mention the name of the person, um, but but anyway, that so that really put me off um, working in the gallery world. It's clearly nasty and, and this was a really reputable person. And another thing the gallery owner did, which which I really thought was horrible, was you'd there'd be these um, beautiful seventh-century uh, um, sculptures of uh, deities from South India, where like Ganesha or something, where the, the trunk of the elephant is missing, elephant god is missing. So the um, conservator or, that they would use wasn't really a conservator, but he was a sculptor. He would hollow out the um, uh, center of the image, mix it with epoxy to recreate the um, trunk. And, and as somebody interested in art history, I felt that was really terrible because they were changing the characteristics and the materiality of the object to such an extent that 
an art historian could not go back to that object and find out anything. How was this object made? At that point, I was talking to the... Um, I was kind of disheartened, and I was talking to the curator at the uh, Met, whom I worked for, and um, who cont I continued to take classes with and was a great friend, and she... I said, um, you know, I just, I don't want to do, ac I don't want to be involved in academia because I want to have contact with the objects. And to me, it's clear that if you're in academia, you do not handle artwork that much. She said, well, why don't you go visit our conservation department? So she set it up and I went and visited and um, one of the conservators there uh, who had just been to Pakistan a couple of years before, she had... Um, gone to look at to do some research and write about paper making families in Pakistan who were no longer making paper of course um, but she wanted to go and sort of do a follow-up because Dard Hunter who wrote um, what did he write paper making um, he had visited them in the 1930s or something and so she wanted to go and follow up so she the one who sort of and she was a Barnard graduate so she said, this is what you need to do to become a conservator. And I was like, all right, you need to get science, you need to go back and do, get a bunch, a whole bunch of chemistry. And uh, these are the graduate schools. There was a graduate school at Columbia at the time. So I went back to college, you know, I went back and took a chemistry class my final semester at um, Barnard. And I looked into the Columbia program and there was no money for foreigners because I wasn't an American citizen so I would have had to pay for graduate school and my dad wasn't willing to pay for it I had no money father was he said if you want to go to graduate school you should go to the UK he never paid for any of my American education because he believed in a British education <laughs> he said you, you want to go to college I pay for you to go to the UK came back to Pakistan and I um, got then you know and while, while I was in Pakistan doing this contract work I um, saw uh, an ad in the newspaper the German government was uh, providing scholarships for Pakistani students to do graduate school in sort of engineering and the sciences in Germany and while I was in New York I had um, realized that Germany had a very good sort of apprenticeship conservation training. They were considered um, to be the best in terms of handwork, um, in terms of the craft of conservation at the time, for book conservation. So um, I wrote a letter to the German embassy um, saying, you know, it's all fine and dandy that you're applying, you're providing money for engineering degrees, um, but what about cultural patrimony? And this is what I'm interested in. This is why I think it's important and I, for you to provide money for me to go and get trained at, in this field in Germany. And I got... Um, Barbara Stoller miller wrote a letter. The curator at the um, Met wrote a letter. And um, the preeminent German scholar of um, Urdu poetry who was at Harvard and at the University of Bonn and was a friend of my father but had also been a curator, guest curator at the Met when I was working there. So she knew me personally, not just as an appendage of my dad. She also wrote a letter.
saying that, you know, we think that she, I think this is an important thing to do. I didn't hear anything. And then I decided to leave Pakistan and Bob, Bob came and we got married. And then uh, we went to Spain. Bob was offered a job in, um, for the fall in Barcelona, at the American School of Barcelona, as was I. So we moved to Barcelona that summer proper and in January of 87 I get a telephone call saying from the German embassy in Pakistan saying we've got money for you for a year to do practical training in conservation in Germany. You start in October of 87. So then I went to Germany. Bob stayed on in Barcelona and I went to Munich for six uh, months at the Bavarian State Library and then um, for six months and then in April I guess I moved to Berlin, West Berlin for six months. The key for getting that German um, grant was that I had to go back because the whole thing I'd written the letter of the need for this right. so, so I had to go back to Pakistan and work for two years um, and that bond had been signed with the Pakistani government so we um, went to Pakistan so we moved to Pakistan Bob and I and our cat from New York Bob's cat rather and then um, we got there and Pakistan was in the throes of an election because the General Ziaul Haq had been killed and the American ambassador had, had been blown up in a plane. So there was an interim government that was, uh, for that year, that was pulling together, preparing for elections. That was 89. So we got there and it was the midst of election, you know, everybody, the political parties were campaigning. We went to Benazir rally, Putto rallies. We it was really exciting. They hadn't been an election, a proper democratic election, since 1974. So people were um, really excited. It was a lot of fun. And then Benazir Putto was elected. So when she was elected, her foreign secretary. So there's a foreign minister who's a political appointee, but that's, you know, that's the cabinet member, but the person who actually really runs culture is the foreign secretary, the administrative person. And he, of course, everyone knows each other. So he, um, uh, during the years when uh, the military dictator had been in power, he had been in London with his wife and family um, running this incredibly great antique bookstore which was called Hussein's, I think, yeah, Hussein's. It was, it was an excellent, excellent bookstore that really um, uh, specialised in rare editions having to do with British colonialism in India. That was their, they had a fantastic collection of that stuff and other things as well. And his daughter was my age and did I, I knew her? Oh, because she um, studied uh, she was my age and she studied at the same university where my brother got his PhD. Um, so we would hang out in the summers in London 
um, I would go for holidays. And my parents, when they retired, they would go to London for summer holidays. Um, so I met him when I got back, and he said to me, I don't want you to work with work here. And I said, why? He said, you're too problematic. And I said, but, but why? And he said, it's because you have a, um, a degree from the US. You're better educated than um, the people who head the conservation division. And in, in, in Islamabad, there was the National Archives, and they had a conservation division. The people who do the actual work are just high school graduates, and you, you'll destabilize the, the uh, you'll be too threatening to the, uh, the chief of conservation. And I said, well, then, then, you know, can I volunteer? And he said, no, you can't volunteer either because you'll give, um, you'll destabilize the, the whole section. You'll give people ideas. We don't want that. So he just basically took the bond and he tore it up in front of my eyes and said, you can go. You know, when I was young and we lived in Libya, I remember um, being in a friend's apartment and her mum saying, can you go down to our next door neighbor's apartment, one floor down, and ask them for a cup of sugar or something, some salt. So my friend and I, we went down, we're 12, and we knock on the door, and there's uh, people look and look through the um, keyhole, and then the door gets opened and we're caught, brought inside, and it's, you know, scantily dressed women, and we come into the room, everyone's naked, it's all women, they're all naked, and we're like, hell is going on and you know they're Libyan Arab women they're having a party where they're it's not really a party they're having a depilation event so they're all got this uh, um, wax it's not wax it's a lemon sugar solution taffy that they put on their body and rip it off and you uh, depilate that way so it's a depilation event party and you know we're they're all naked, they're having a good time, nobody's self-conscious except for me, my 12-year-old self and my friend and they give us some sugar and they laugh at us because we're kind of embarrassed and make fun of us and we get sent off. So I think women in Muslim societies and in India and Pakistan, which was a Hindu and a Muslim society, within within women's communities they are not shy they um, appreciate each other's body and clothing and all that um, and that's been the case that was the case when they had harems and when there was a clear delineation between women's space and men's space and you'd have all the women in the family would be together and there was a certain freedom of um, the type of clothing they wear, wore and what they did. Like my great-grandmother, my grandmother, not my great-grandmother, my grandmother, the wife of the tailor, he used to make her beautiful, beautiful clothing. And she lived in the women's quarters, you know, she was in the women's quarters. And so she could basically wear whatever she wanted to. So he would make her 
um, bras that were beautifully covered in sequins mm, yeah. and underwear that was beautifully embroidered and on top of that there would be this diaphanous cloth she would walk around like that all day yeah. and it was private and there were other women there her, yeah. her kids and her, um, aunts and that's the way women dressed but only a few men could appreciate it the husband would appreciate it or um, but other women could appreciate it so now that things have changed, women cover up in public, and they have in the past as well. And um, they don't appreciate each other half as much, frankly. They're really, in Pakistan, they're really mean to each other. Every woman is a rival. There's no solidarity. The idea of women not being kind to each other, you know, the change that has happened. My sister in Pakistan, she works in, 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 she's a scientist, so she works with women who, as I said before, quite conservative, you know, everybody is quite religiously conservative and politically conservative in her workplace. So some of the women come in um, and they wear not just not only a hijab around the head, but they wear an abaya, which is a Saudi coat type thing that covers their clothing. So my sister has, you know, an, an office that has closed doors, etc. So they get together and have coffee, or something. And she tells her, she told one of her colleagues they have lunch. They had lunch. She told one of her colleagues who was dressed like this. Well, you know, now we're just women here. I'll lock the door. Why don't you take off the abaya and hijab and just get comfortable? And this woman said to her, How do I know that you aren't looking at me as if I'm a sexual object? Though my sister actually believes that they that the women who wear the abaya never really change their clothes. They just come to work in the pajama suit. <laughs> just wear your house coat <laughs> to work. I've always found that I think there are actually not very many people in the world who are really nasty. But what I found in work, which I think is really interesting, is that most people don't really listen to each other. And most people don't really know what they want. So you have a difficult encounter with, you know, with a colleague or a work um, colleague and you want to put you want to make a change and you want to put something forward and they immediately say no and I have always found that actually when they say no they may not mean no they just want something to change they, they there's something there's there's a bottom line that they have and they may not know what that is so you have to just find out what is it that they really want because they may say no right up front but they actually don't mean that no they mean i don't really want to change i want this thing and this thing might be several layers down from their no.
but they haven't even really articulated what that thing is that they really want and to help them figure out what is it that they really want and and then and then you can come to some consensus and you know you there can be a give and take and and i think that's that's actually um something that i find is really um important to figure out and at work people you know one of the criticisms i receive is that um you know yasmin everybody likes you and you get along with people um which is one of so it's one of the criticisms i receive but that's also one of the strengths um that i get and it's because because of my uh, having traveled so much and living with a father who's the consummate diplomat it's sort of a realization that you have to how do you compromise with people to figure out how to how you can work together and what we have now is a really polarized society but i don't think i don't think m most of the people who are have politically diametrically who have diametrically opposed views from me don't want what's best for themselves or what's best for their community or their country I think they want it as much as we want it I think they just the the dialogue has just been set at such a level that nobody has stated what it is they're letting somebody else state what what it is that they need to believe in as opposed to actually what I believe in, what my bottom line is. I mean you spoke about your parents being very kind people and yet stating political views that might be different from more more extreme from what their actual behaviour is. Yeah. But when you you know, until you start talking to people and sort of digging into what is it you really want, you're not going to be able to work together. And we haven't done that. We don't do that. But actually, at work, that's why I'm effective, because I ask people, what, what is it, what's your bottom line? This is my bottom line, what's your bottom line? And I'll give you this and you can give me that. And we can all be happy. We can be happy with, you know, we each get a little bit of what we want. Actually, quite a lot of what we want. But most people state, this is what I want and I'm not budging. But all that requires is sitting with that person and having a conversation. The first conversation might be painful. You go back and talk, you go back and talk again. And because you we may not know what is it that we really actually want and the only way to do that is by having certain having difficult conversations very gifted in hearing what a person is saying and rephrasing it in a way that helps communicate within a group yeah you really i heard you do that a few times very skillfully 
And I think that has to do with having travelled, moved, moved around in many different countries and actually talking to people in different languages. Well, when you speak different languages, it really changes you. Yeah. And having to translate for different people mm -hmm. over time. I think that has to. Do you know, my brother once told me, and he lives in the UK, um, that uh, when they, when he works in the, um, you know, IBM kind of industry, when they'd have meetings and people would uh, give ideas, they were told, you know, you can't, if you think an idea is bad as a manager, you're not supposed to say that's awful. Um, you have to come up with different phrases. So my brother's was, is that wise? <laughs> Which is hilarious. And when I was in graduate school, I was given a project um, to work on, which was a Mexican manuscript that was, um, you know, it was, they said it was dated for sort of 15, the late, late 1500s, but um, as I was looking at it and studying it, I realized it was from the 17, mid 1700s. And um, I was looking at the material and as I was doing a literature survey, I found that a conservator at the Library of Congress had worked on early Mexican Mexican um, manuscripts from material from uh, the 16th century. So I contacted her and she was a paper conservator at the Library of Congress and she was very kind to me and gave me all kinds of information. So I, at the end of my academic masters, we had to do a six month, an eight month internship practical work and I came to the Smithsonian to do it and while I was there I contacted this conservator who had been very kind to me because I was still working on the project and actually I brought Bob in as well to work on the project with me so he did a um, looked at the uh, manuscript as a piece of literature and I worked on the materiality and um, I went to visit her at the library and she shared information with me and uh, she's a very good friend of mine and we had kids a month apart and her husband was the head of the book conservation lab so they befriended me and um, at the end of my internship her husband offered me a one-month contract at the library to work on Islamic material because that's what I was interested in and they didn't have anybody with that expertise and I had more experience in it. So after working there for six weeks I was uh, offered a position in the book Paper Lab to work on graphic arts and cartooning stuff which I did for three months and then there was another job opening in um, working on digital projects which I applied for and I got and that was a five-year position in the paper lab and I took that and I told Sylvia's husband who was the head of the book lab I said I'm taking these paper positions but I want you to know 
I really want a book position. And often they don't usually take book conservators as paper conservators, but because I, um, in Texas I'd worked as a paper conservator for two years, I had a lot of um, paper experience. And my earlier training was in Islamic manuscripts, but many Islamic manuscripts are illuminated, so I got a lot of paper treatment as well. So that's how I ended up there. But um, it really has to do with, uh, you know, the paper conservator Sylvia, who who was fantastic, and she still is. She's one of my um, best mentors buddies and and uh, a person who's kind of a role model not just to me but to mounds and mounds of people yeah one thing I have heard a lot is that you know why why do this work how is it relevant to society um, to society moving forward and so, I, when I was in the book arts program, when I talk about my passion for medieval European manuscripts, you know, people will say, what, what does that have to do with anything? And so, how would you answer a question like that? And to be uh, critical and well-balanced human being you need to know you need to have a good connection to the past to move towards the future and you can't idealize the past you can't let somebody else tell you what the past is you can't believe in slogans like I want America to be great again without knowing what patrimony of the nation was in a very real in very um, concrete terms and that's what um, historians conservators do they well historians interpret the past but conservators conserve the past so that people can actually study where they came from and know where they're going forward too, as opposed to having people tell them idealizing the past and therefore making the future kind of untenable because you're coming from, you're idealizing, if you idealize the past, then you live in the past and then you can't create a future that is um, actually uh, viable. So by preserving the past, it gives you um, an idea of where you came from, what the what the uh, what the um, strengths and the weaknesses are, were of your ancestors, and I I say that in a sort of general terms. Like, like I'm Pakistani, um, my ancestor was not, you know, I do not, in a in a very uh, in terms of DNA, I don't share DNA with. Jefferson, you know, genetic ancestry with Jefferson to the same extent, but in terms of ideas, yeah.
I live in a world that in the U.S. It, you know, some of the way we live in is is that the society is based on what the forefathers uh, of uh, the nation sort of put in place, and you you can't critique it unless you know it, and you can't know it unless it exists, and it won't exist unless you preserve it. And of course, I have a more prurient interest in how things were made and what kind of inks they used and who made the paper and that kind of thing. What the conservator does is not, you know, a historian will analyse and interpret, but anybody can read it, even if they don't have the interpretive, the, the context or something. So the conservator, what the conservator does in a macro level is preserve the object so a fifth grade kid can read it, a historian can read it, the teacher can read it. Anybody can read it. Um, but what the conservator's interest may be in is in how what the the evidence of the society that produced that piece how that is manifest. But in in this particular object. But that's sort of a that's that's the kind of interest that gives greater meaning to me as a conservator because I'm interested in materiality. But not everybody's interested in materiality. I understand that maybe the text for the larger society is more ex more important than the materiality of the object. Because not everybody, not everybody's a, you know, many people can appreciate a dish, but not everybody is a cook or a farmer and interested in whether, whether pepper was grown that is in the dish or how many peppers are in the dish but they might enjoy the dish yeah that's well said yeah i think that i i personally feel so strongly you know because i really think about as i said what kind of society is the best is a good society is a society i want to live in what kind of society and that was the first assignment that i was given when I got to Barnard in my first political science class your job is to go back to your dorm and write uh, and create a utopia and then bring it back and s say what it is and so it's something I still think about what would be the and a society that I want to live in was a society where everyone has access to what makes us human? What mm -hmm. makes us? What gives depth to our lives? The things we cook, how you cook, why we cook, where the food comes from, what it means—you know—all these layers. And it seems to me that what you do, um, there's so many pieces of that that you bring to the table when you're doing your work. Yeah. And then other people, the people who are interested, it, it's available to them. And the people who aren't interested, well, They're. maybe they'll read it, maybe they won't. But as a society, we have that information for those people who wish to partake. I see myself at this moment in life, what I find important is, and we've talked about this, 
is actually smelling the roses, going for a walk, being in touch with nature. And I'm somebody who's been brought up in a city, all completely urban. I do not feel comfortable in the wilderness. Um, but I find that going for a walk in greenery really invigorates me. Um, being introspective in nature invigorates me. And I've come to this realization now. But I think that's because, um, so I think that's a, 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 a something that should have happened much earlier. So when we went to Denmark recently, I um, met a cousin of a friend and he said how his kids in the first like elementary school it's outdoors they drop the kids at school the kids are taken to a wilderness area a small group of them there's a little hut in the wilderness area there is no classroom it's all about there's a, one teacher and it's all about going out and exploring their environment and all these and they learn all kinds of things they learn math they learn history they learn geography they learn all kinds of things but it's not in a classroom it's not at a desk it's not a, it's not with a it's not you're not sequestered from nature to learn these things you're within nature and they teach it to you within nature which is where all the stuff actually is. And so the kids, what they're trying to do is create a society where the kids have a very close relationship with the natural environment. And I think it's sad that it's after the age of 50, or really around 40, that I started um, developing this relationship but imagine how great it would be if we had you know a whole society with kids have this relationship with nature and then they're also taught how to read the newspaper at an early age and how to critique what they read and what's happening in the world and that's how they learn how to read they don't learn from short stories, or they le don't learn from um, childish stuff, but they learn from, and the newspaper does not have complex English, what's happening around them and in their environment, and what's being said, and what one newspaper says, what another newspaper says, what a conservative newspaper says, what a liberal newspaper says, and to interpret information as they're getting it. I think if everybody was brought up with those skills, we'd be a different society. Yeah, and it wouldn't be, you know, and, and of course there'd be people who are crazy, but people would have a better sense of where we actually come from as homo sapiens. And that we're not alone and we're not alone and what our relationship with our environment is our actions have consequences yeah because what, what our, as a city dweller 
what do I know about what my my actions, what my uh, what the relationship of my life with the natural world? I live in a big city with a concrete jungle. You know, I think I mean how how can how can somebody who lives in a big city or a or a suburban you know uh, home with you know manicured lawns and um, pesticide really appreciate how their actions um, affect their the environment as a whole I, I think it's ridiculous to expect you have to be educated to it yeah but I think it's one thing to be educated to it at an intellectual level but when you're a child you're educated in it in your body in your body and in in levels that um you know the mind uh, will understand it yeah it's like me as a conservator i look at an object and i can articulate everything i see mm -hmm. but there's actually a whole lot of information i gather from an object sure. that i if i were to articulate it, it would put put people to sleep because it would be to such nitty-gritty detail um, and much of it I can't articulate because I know it at an at a, at a, at a level that is um, not precognitive but it's like it's it's metacognitive I can't put words to it yeah and it comes it's from repetition yeah and it's it's and that's what a kid who spends countless hours in a natural environment will be trained, will somehow absorb all this information that will then be put to great use later in life because they'll have this sort of knowledge that's sort of ground into their DNA. If my, in my utopian society, it would start with the kids. And the adults would be flawed until the kids became adults. But the flawed adults would set the, set the stage for the kids to sort of, you know, create a generation that might have hope, that would hopefully move us, um, move human society forward a little bit. Well, we should probably close. I could continue talking about this, and let's do continue talking. We'll have it over dinner. Yes. Yep. But I want to thank you for your time and for what you're doing in this world. It's my pleasure. It's your, it's your taxpayer money that's <laughs> making it possible for me to do what I like. Well, and libraries and, um, are one of the ways in which I, whenever people s complain about taxes, I always say that I want to pay taxes so that we can have libraries. I think that's fantastic. Because they're really, I don't want to hear that from people. No, they shouldn't. I mean, they're... D please know what you're complaining about. Do you want to live in a world without libraries? Where, and for me, a library means certain, you know, knowledge and access to the world. Yes. And a safe space, which I think is what librarians in the U.S. have really 
done a great job at is creating a safe space where the government does not have access to all your information. Yeah. So. Right, well, thank you, Yasmin. Thank you, Anne. You can learn more about Yasmin Khan and her work at the Library of Congress on our website at greenbucketpress.com slash present-tense-podcast. If you've not been to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., I highly suggest that you schedule a trip and leave plenty of time because there's so much to see. Links to the library are at greenbucketpress.com slash present-tense-podcast. Please support the archiving, digitizing, and repair of our shared human experience stored in libraries and museums across the globe. Many of these institutions offer digital galleries on the web so that we can gain access that way. You can also include visits to libraries and rare book galleries as part of your travel plans. I was never taken to Disney World as a child, but I was taken to rare book libraries across the world. Remember that your local library or bookstore is a great place to hang out. Check out the Green Bucket Press shop. Your purchase supports episodes like this one. You can listen to Present Tense Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or you can listen online at our website. Thanks to Yasmin Khan for our interview. Thanks to cellist Craig Holtgren for our theme music. And until next time, tell it like it is. Thank you.